Hello everyone and welcome to the Wilds Cast. You're in for a real treat. Today's episode is a special one. It's a conversation between Rabbi Wilds and his close friend, Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg, the senior rabbi of Boca Raton Synagogue, the largest Orthodox synagogue in the Southeast United States. Even outside of his Florida community, Rabbi Goldberg is known across the country for the leadership role he plays in the modern Orthodox community. His classes are now enjoyed by thousands of people each day around the world. On today's show, the two rabbis talk about the biggest challenges they face shepherding a community through a global pandemic and the importance of promoting nuanced conversations amongst their congregants. So, without further ado, here's Rabbi Wilds. Uh, I want to welcome everyone. Uh, I'm extremely, extremely excited uh, about this podcast. Uh, I have the great pleasure and privilege to introduce uh, an old friend, uh, Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg, who is the senior rabbi of Boca Raton Synagogue, the largest modern Orthodox synagogue in Southeast United States. He's got over 850 families with over 1,000 kids. I've been to Rabbi Goldberg's shul on Shabbos. It is bustling. This is before Corona. Um, like way over 1,000 people every Shabbos, like 10 minyanim classes, programs. He is just on the cutting edge of what a synagogue can do to be engaged with its population and even beyond. Uh, in addition to his local work, Rabbi Goldberg is involved in a number of national organizations and projects. He's vice president of the Rabbinical Council of America. Uh, he's a member of the Board of Trustees of the Beit Din of America. He's on the Editorial Committee of Tradition and on the APAC National Council. Rabbi Goldberg has delivered invocation to the United States House of Representatives and thrown out the first pitch, I love this, at a Miami Marlins game. And he is a very sought-after scholar in residence, which is why I'm so grateful to my friend that he was able to find the time to do this. He's spoken at the APEC Policy Conference, the JNF National Conference, RCA, OU National Conventions. He's one of those rabbis who's really also distinguished himself during this period of corona, showing on one hand great, great compassion for his congregants, for the Jewish community at large, and extraordinary leadership on the other. He is the host of Behind the Bima, which is his podcast, which I am a regular fan of, and he's a dear friend of the MJ community. I met Rabbi Ephraim through our dear friend, Rabbi Ezra Cohn, MGE's current COO and downtown director. Rabbi Ezra and, and Rabbi Ephraim were classmates and friends for many, many years. Um, he is a dear, dear colleague whose Torah I often quote from and have been inspired from. Welcome, welcome, Rabbi Ephraim. I can Rabbi go Wilds, on and on. Wow, stop. thank you so much. You are the legend and a dear friend, and it's an honor to be here. I'll tell you something funny even before we get started. You know, I, I, when I get invited to speak and they ask me for my bio, I always send back, Rabbi Boca Raton Synagogue. And they're like, w where's the rest of it? And I said, I find that the people who submit really long bios and quote everything they've ever written in, it's because they're trying to prove something. And like, you know, when Rabbi Sachs was the chief rabbi, he would just tell you, chief rabbi of the United Kingdom. He didn't have to list everything else. So um, Rabbi Booker Tone Synagogue, married man, <laughs> father, my kids, that's good for me. But thank you awesome. anyway for your kind words. Well, well we, we, we downloaded your bio, so I know you I didn't send it, it to us. I want to get something out of the way also. Um, I just, this is a very personal note. I, I used to be the rock star rabbi in my family, um, and uh, except my wife started listening to your Torah uh, a number of years ago, um, and I've effectively been replaced by you. Um, she absolutely loves your talks and lectures, and it's a joke. It's a running joke every time we get in the car. Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg gets on, gets, okay. we gotta listen to Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg, and it's been a little of a blow to my ego, um, you know, I'm getting some therapy. I'm dealing with it right now. But I just wanted to get that out of the way just to clear the air. You know, there's a comment that's often quoted. People think that it's from our Torah, but it actually comes from another religion. Ain Navi Biro. There is no prophet in their own town. And uh, that's why your wife listens to me because she doesn't live with me, much like my wife listens to other podcasts because she knows me too well. So don't be too insulted. All right. I appreciate that. We have smart wives. All right. So look, before we get into life during Corona, tell us a little... Um, I know some of the answers to these questions, but I want our listeners to hear what inspired you to become a rabbi. I mean, were there, were you considering anything else? Why did you choose this path? It's a good question. When I was growing up, my father was in business. My father is retired now. He was the CFO of a public company. Um, my mother was in adult education and Holocaust teaching and 
kosher kitchen designing. Um, I have a lot of business ambition, and the truth is that's still that's still an itch that I have that I kind of need to scratch regularly too. I, I do it by by being involved in the shul in a leadership capacity, following a sort of CEO model, which enables me to fulfill that business ambition or aspiration. I love to read, and you and I have compared notes on productivity books and business books, and applying that knowledge of management to our world, the nonprofit world, which could use a lot of that mentality uh, for a sense of excellence. So I, I thought I was going to go into business. At one point, I thought I'd be a lawyer, maybe doctor, but then I realized how much schooling was involved, and that wasn't my specialty. Um, and really, it was after my years in Israel, I studied at Karen Biavna, and I came back. I was in YU, and I grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey, and in my hometown, in my home shul, I got involved in some of the teen work, trying to inspire the next generation of teenagers based on my inspiration that I had found in my time in Israel. And we instituted a bunch of programs and classes, and in the interactions, it was really gratifying. It was really satisfying trying to impact other people's lives. And and I felt something within myself that came very much alive. And I realized, you know, that's what I want to do. I want to be involved in this. And when we came to Boca, you know, fast forward, got married, came to Boca Raton. There was a community cola at the time, enabled us to study a good part of the day and also to start to get our feet wet in Jewish professional life. I thought I was going to be in education. We had a local high school taught one class a day while I was in the kollel, it was Chumash, and uh, I thought I was going to be a high school rabbi, a high school teacher, connect with the uh, teenage boys, and I quickly learned that it did not, was not my skill set, and I credit my wife, Yecheved, who really encouraged me and pushed me and, and told me and thought that um, I would I would do better and I'd, and I'd get more out of being involved in the rabbinate. So uh, Rabbi Brander, Rabbi Josh Fass were the rabbi and assistant rabbi at the time, and I went to them and I said, anytime you need a third, First of all, you need a third for a Beisden, rabbinical court for conversion or something like that. If you're not here, you want someone to fill in. In the Dvar Torah between Melchimar, I'm your man. I want to get exposed to, I want to get, I want to get experience in, I want to know what it's like. And I fell in love with it, and I, and I love it. I love what I do every day. It's got its stress. I'm sure we'll talk about that. It's got its challenges. But I, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. I love what I do. You're, that's, that's awesome. Thank you. I mean, the business interest you have is such an important part of the rabbinate today uh, and it's not enough in my opinion uh, in many people's rabbinate and uh, I think one of your your um, secret sauce you know besides your great teaching and personality uh, is this entrepreneurial spirit that you have what what has been the most surprising thing that you've discovered being a rabbi and can you share the strangest thing that you've ever been asked sure um what is the most surprising thing? So the reason, part of why I love the rabbi, and I think a lot of rabbis would tell you that, you know, if, if they did this testing when we were younger, we would probably find we have ADD. Many of us have an inability to sit at a desk at an office all day long. And part of the beauty of the rabbinate is no two days, no two hours are the same, right? They're, they're the constants of, of our teaching and preaching. And there's, there's pastoral care and there's, um, there's life cycle events. But literally every day you don't know what's going to come up. And you're, you're realizing different aspects of yourself. Like, who knew you could manage a crisis? We've been through hurricanes in, in South Florida, um, and I don't want to say that we can do them in our sleep, and I certainly don't want to welcome any others. We don't like them. But we kind of have it down to know how to time it and the rhythm of it and the planning for it and the cleanup after it. Um, again, we don't want to be tested again with it. But this whole pandemic, this coronavirus, has, has challenged all of us. How do you lead? How do you make decision-making? How do you create policy, public policy, in areas where there's so much uncertainty and doubt? We don't know, and we're not epidemiologists or, or infectious disease specialists. How do you create a task force, and how do you weigh their, their input? Um, so the rabbit, no two days are the same. And you can be visiting someone in prison, and you can be speaking to somebody whose spouse found out they're having an affair, and you can be counseling somebody who's come out or who's undergoing transgender surgery, and you can be dealing with somebody who's attempted suicide or counseling the family who've just discovered or walked in on a family member who actually committed suicide. And every, everything I'm telling you are actual things that I've been involved with. Combine that with the teaching and with the management and the programs and the classes and the creativity, um, and it's an amazing, amazing position. So what didn't I expect within it? I don't know that I expected the amount of being involved in people's personal lives. I knew that you'd counsel as a rabbi, and the training at YU is so different than when you and I were there. I mean, it's just 
in terms of the pastoral counseling, in terms of preparing people, in terms of even the self-awareness that young rabbis are coming out with better understanding and learning about themselves is, is really categorically different than I think that we had, though did it, indebted that they've continued to provide that education for us. So I, I really thought that I was going to teach a lot of Torah and try to take care of people. And if people came to meet with you, they'd be like, I want your advice about which yeshiva our son should go to or which seminary our daughter should go to. But the idea that they open up and invest and expose themselves in the most personal, deeply personal ways and confide in you and, and seek your advice and let you in, um, I think surprised me. I don't know that we were prepared for it. I think some intuitively have it better than others, but that's why I think continued education, reading, learning, listening, um, you can gain a tremendous amount. So what are some of the strange situations? I alluded to some of them. Wait, and before you get to the strange, yeah. how do you deal with that just emotionally? I'm curious because... I mean, those are some heavy, those examples you gave, I mean, those are some heavy experiences. They're very, they're very heavy, yeah. You know, I, I think there are two kinds of rabbis. There are many more than that kind of rabbis, but the two kind of rabbis. Um, and there are those who have a hard shell around themselves. And uh, this is probably true for oncologists or doctors or, or different professions, therapists and, and psychologists in general, mental health professionals. Um, you could build a hard shell around yourself and protect yourself from the people you're interacting with and do it professionally. Provide a service and care about them in the moment and then close yourself off and move on. Because if you were to absorb everything, then you'd become debilitated. How could you live? And there are others who are really invested and they open up their heart and they take it personally. I think they make the best rabbis. I think that there's a double-edged sword. You're also very vulnerable as a result. You can get hurt easily. You can feel the pain of others and carry it easily. So um, I too, you know, there's the old story of the rabbi and I've had to, you probably have to, literally go from a funeral, bring a second tie in the car, change from the funereal tie that Rabbi Luxstein told us we had to have and change out of the funereal tie into the wedding tie and go from the wedding, from the funeral to the wedding and go from, you know, delivering a eulogy where you really were trying to feel sympathy and empathy and connect with that sense of loss to dancing in the middle of a circle or even to officiating at a wedding and make that transition. It's not easy because the more you compartmentalize, the more colder of a person you can become. So I, I think that you can shut yourself off, but you'll be, you won't be as good of a, a rabbi, as good of a friend, as good of a person. Yeah, you know, Rabbi Schachter, our mentor and teacher, uh, he said this, you've heard this from him, I'm sure, so many times. The whole concept of imo anochi b'tzara, which for our listeners, that means that I am with you in your pain. Like unless the other person feels that you're feeling some of their pain, you're not going to be as effective as a rabbi and as a, as, as a teacher and as a guide. You know, on the other hand, as you're saying, you have to protect yourself. Um, you got to build some kind of wall because you know, <laughs> if you take that to the end degree with so many people, right. there'll be nothing left of you. So the image I have for it is, you know, you have cubby space or you have shelves or you have compartments or files and the people that you're involved with and that you're engaged with, both for the sad and the happy, you can take that experience, and when you're not dealing with it directly, it goes in the file, it goes in the cubby, it goes in the compartment, but you're not purging it all together. You know, sometimes you have to clear space. I was in the middle of giving a class this morning, and my computer decided to tell me right then that I'd run out of memory and decided to disconnect me from everybody that I was talking to. So right afterwards, you go through that frantic, empty the trash, which files, you're trying to figure out what you really need or don't need. So there's the visual image of empty the trash of your computer, where it's really gone forever. Are you prepared to delete it and empty the trash? And there are people who go through experiences with others, and right after they empty the trash of that experience as opposed to filing it away where it's not on your home screen, it's not at the forefront of your mind, but you also haven't purged it or deleted it, you didn't empty the trash from it. Interesting, interesting. And, and I cut you off there. You were about to tell us your, the strangest thing that's happened to you as a I, rabbi. You know, I don't even, it's really hard to think there are so, There's so many, many strange things. No, there, there are strange things and I also don't want to then depict as if Boca Raton or South, you know, Florida has a reputation whenever you find that wacky news or the, it's a Florida story, that crazy <laughs> person. So I don't want to, I don't want to promote that sense. I think that what I've experienced and I've talked to colleagues and, and I know that you have also within your um, within your community, we've all experienced whatever's happening in the general world is happening in the Jewish community. It's happening in the Orthodox community. It's happening in every segment of it. If it's out there, it's happening in there also. So, um, you know, whether it's visiting maximum security prison and, and that experience, um, whether it was um, once I was driving home from shul on a Friday, it's actually a crazy story. We, we have multiple minyanim in an ordinary time. We've got the early minyan on Friday night, and then we've got the 7 o'clock, the mandatory Mount Orthodox 7 o'clock Friday night minyan, and then we've got the regular Shabbos time, which we call the late minyan. 
and we had a lot of guests Friday night regularly, and every in the summer, every week kind of went the same way. My wife would ask me, we're having guests, they want to know what time we're making Shabbos, and I'd say, oh, early Shabbos. Then I'd call as we were getting closer, I'd be like, the sermon's not happening, I need a little more time, 7 o'clock Shabbos. <laughs> and I'd call, no, let them know we're making the late Shabbos. <laughs> so she finally tells me, you know, I'm sick and tired, everyone else comes first, you got to do the sermon, plan your week better, it's not fair to the guests, not fair to our kids, we're making the early Shabbos this week, no matter what, with you or without you, be ready, that's when we're making the Shabbos. <laughs> Fine, I plan around it, I get the drusha done early, I'm driving home, time I didn't live next door to the shul a little further, and I'm driving home, and there is a teenager from the community standing in the middle of the street with no shirt on and blood coming out of several places in his chest, and he flags me over and he says, there's a kid, not from our shul, but who lives in the area, who's high right now and has turned violent, who tried to stab him, and he's now going to try to kill his sister. I need you to come. So I call my wife and I'm like, we're not making early Shabbos. She starts to go on her, I told you with your, I said, it's not the drush. I promise you, you'll understand. I'll explain it later. Just let the guests know. And I call 911, of course, and then I pull over and I start to run with this kid after that other kid. And when we find that, we, find, we catch up with the guy, I'm like, what do I do now? I'm not a hero. I'm not a policeman. I've never been trained in the IDF. Like, what do we do now? And thank God there was another community member who did fulfill some of those other uh, positions who stepped in and we held the guy down. It took, it's an amazing wow. thing, not the topic of this podcast, but when someone is high and in a deranged state of mind, it took like six policemen to hold him down. They ultimately tased him in order to keep him calm. The strength and the adrenaline rush that you get in those moments, it is uh, absolutely insane. So that was a pretty, wow. that was a pretty crazy story. That is nuts. Uh, I will tell you, it might help to wear a costume. On Purim one year, I was dressed as Superman, and we were delivering Mishloch Manot, and, you know, to gifts and baskets of food to people on Purim. And uh, my wife yells, there's this guy being, like, harassed by, like, four, like, huge, but they like, teenagers, and they look big. And she's like, you got to help the guy. And I'm like, what do you mean help the guy? I'm like, he's like, you're Superman. <laughs> so I jumped out of the car. I jumped out of the car, I looked like I had to cape the whole thing, and I walked right into it, and everybody stopped. And there was a woman calling the police, um, and she said, should I stop dialing? And I said, no, keep dialing, this is just a costume. That's great. Anyway, I was actually able to break it up, but That's costumes do help. That's amazing. So let me ask you a question. Um, what is, can, what I, can, I ask, is, can I ask you a question based on that last yeah. conversation? I know it's your <laughs> podcast. I'm not trying to take over. But I'm curious because, you know, you're a hero legend. You really set the bar high when it comes to Jewish engagement, young professionals, singles, married, um, and trying to move them in the needle of fighting the trends of assimilation, intermarriage, and the like. And you've done an amazing job. And you've brought that same entrepreneurial spirit. In your line of work, you know, there's a lot more maybe disappointment, rejection, I don't know, frustration of challenge of not being able to move people along that trajectory. That how do, how do you deal with that? How do you not absorb that frustration or rejection in that sense? Wow. Um, well, I would answer very simply, not well. <laughs> I would say I, I, I really struggle with, um, you know, I'm a very goal-oriented person, and the goal of MG is to inspire and lift up and I know it, on one hand, intellectually, that all we can do, <clears throat> excuse me, is provide inspiration, information, knowledge, wisdom, guidance, role models. At the end of the day, people have to make their own decision. People are invested in free will, no matter how charismatic their teachers are. At the end of the day, it's going to come down to our students deciding whether, on their own, do I want to keep Shabbos? Do I want to start taking on Kashrut? And it could be very frustrating because you could put a crazy amount of energy and input into a single person. And for whatever reason, that person's just not ready to make that kind of commitment. And then someone else who you're not ignoring, but you're clearly not paying much attention to, all of a sudden they, they start developing. And you realize as I get older and having been do doing this for a while, that we play a very important role, but probably not as big of a role as we like to think. There's probably... A lot more God <laughs> and Siyata Deshmai, as they say in Aramaic, is happening with this process. Um, but it, it's really a struggle. I, I appreciate the question. It's important. It's chizik, probably for all of us because that is, that is definitely a big frustrating part of the job. You're putting your heart and soul, you're so deeply invested. And when it doesn't feel like it's being reciprocated or responded to well, you know, like you said, if you're entrepreneurial and goal-oriented, part of it is the competitiveness. Like, what do you mean I'm not being successful? Or I fix things. What do you mean that I can't fix this or, or improve this? It, it becomes hard to absorb it. Modesty and humility, I guess, is the answer. 
Modesty and humility, also speaking, you know, chavr chavr de'itle, you know, speaking to colleagues, other people in the field, understanding that they have the same, similar struggles. I also think, and I'm going to get back to questions for you, but it's so much more difficult today to uh, inspire people Jewishly. Uh, and I'm sure you see this in your rabbinate as well as it was perhaps 20 years ago, particularly for our population that doesn't have as much of a background. But this is not about me. Um, um, Let's let's get into Corona a little, if you can, because um, we've all had to evolve uh, our lives as rabbis since the uh, global pandemic started back in March. What has been the most profound change in your life, both professionally and personally, that you've seen during this time? So we'll start with the personal. Um, It's been a profound, radical change, changes. Um, I'm actually really fearful that I won't be able to continue them because I'm enjoying them. And of course, both professionally and personally, there's changes in both directions. There's, we're living in an abnormal time. So there are parts of it that we hope we will continue to feel are abnormal and they don't become normal. And there are parts of it that we hope will start to feel normal and they won't be abnormal or an aberration. I'll give you just a couple examples. I think that every Shabbos and holiday, Pesach, Shavuos, I don't think I've failed yet once to go for a walk with my with members of my family. I can add up in my 20 years of living in Boca all the walks I had taken with members of the family, family on a Shabbos or holiday until then and probably have a few fingers left over on one hand. Uh, and yet every single Shabbos and every single holiday I've gone for multiple walks because that feeling of being confined and at home and on top of one another, needing to get out, needing to connect, needing to even see other people, even if it was from a distance and passing, um, to encounter nature in our neighborhood, in our backyard, you go for a walk around the lake and there's a fountain and there's wildlife. You see iguanas and turtles and frogs and tadpoles and fish and ducks and just on that walk, it's like an affirmation of life and life is going on. So I've taken different children one by one and we have these patterns and we go for these walks and certain other people go walking at the same time every Shabbos morning or like and, and I spend time with them. So you know, there's an example that I hope going for a walk and right now in Florida in a historic heat wave, it can, it can feel like 105 degrees outside. I'm still going for that walk and coming home really schwitzed up, really sweaty. But the walk is the time, the conversation, the engagement with others. I've learned that that it nourishes my soul. It, it really is something that makes me feel alive. It's it's enriching, and I hope it will continue. I, I want it to continue. I don't want it to stop. I'm spending time with you know meals, re- reclaimed Shabbos and holidays. To the point that there's a piece of me that says, you know, when this is over, I don't know if I want to go back. Now, I'm going to go back. I love what I do, and I love what I do on Shabbos and holidays too, the sermons we give and the like. But, you know, the days were structured, giving sermons, rotating so many different uh, services, having guests. There was so little time to actually immerse ourselves in what Shabbos is supposed to be. So really not practicing what I or we were preaching. And now... The Shabbos meals, they're, they're beautiful, they're amazing. Shalashidas, which is the holiest time of the week, the third meal as the Shabbos is slipping away and ending. And, and we've created certain rituals within our family and our home. We look forward to it. And you know what? We have Shalashidas at Shul every single week. I don't have to be there. We have a team of amazing rabbis and we can rotate. I, I have to be there at times and I want to be there. It's not that I want to never go back again, but we have more control than we generally admit. And we can... Um, organize our lives in ways that we can continue to do some of these things that we have discovered. And so those are a couple of the areas which with time with family, Shalashidas, going for these walks have really uh, been able to personally. I'll also tell you, I know a lot of people have have gained weight during Corona and I don't blame them. Um, But just as Corona began, I had topped out in the scale in a way I was really unhappy and I decided just coincidentally, it wasn't like here's a Corona ambition because I don't think any of us thought it would last this long. Um, But thank God I've been able to lose a bunch of weight and I had a Peloton, mm-hmm. which was a gift uh, I got for a major birthday in my life, which was five years ago. It tells you how long it was sitting there <laughs> and collecting. You know, it was a great clothing rack like it is for many people. Um, but over these four months, uh, you know, Peloton, when you go on it, it gives you these updates, these streaks that you set, how many days or how many weeks you've done. You get badges or honors or, or, or uh, trophies. So I've been earning them. I've been, I've been doing it. And it's been – so, you know, all the things that we said I don't have time for, I don't have headspace for – We've discovered, I think, during this time, many of them we have. And, and what was abnormal in my last life, I hope will become part of the normal in the future life. Professionally. Before you jump to professionally, I just think that just to dwell on the walks, I love that. I just think that's gorgeous. Not even, you know, a lot of our listeners are single. Um, 
So they don't have that maybe significant other to walk with or children to walk with. But the idea of just getting out, um, and I, I want to say this again to everyone listening during this pandemic, because we're not out of the woods yet, as, uh, unfortunately, is to, uh, especially on Shabbos, and I hope, uh, Rabbi Ephraim, you don't mind me just using this as a commercial, because so many of our students and participants have really been struggling. You know, they were starting to keep Shabbos, and then this thing broke. And a lot of the way that a single person starts keeping Shabbos living in Manhattan is with other people. And now that whole, that, that whole structure just broke down. And I've been saying this again and again, plan a walk with a friend in Central Park, wherever you're living right now, even if you're shacked up with your parents, right? There's someone in the neighborhood you can get together with, uh, stay six feet apart and go on a walk together. It doesn't have to be only on Shabbos, but I do think... It doesn't just let the time go by, but it enhances. There is an uh, idea, I think, really of walking and, of course, of nature. You know, just to see God's beautiful creations on the day of Shabbos could be very, very powerful. So Absolutely. I really appreciate the walk. You know, as you're saying that, it occurs to me there's a custom, which is not a law, but it's a really almost universal custom. When a person finishes mourning the end of Shiva, we take them for a walk outside. And whenever I take people out of their Shiva, so to say, I always tell them that I think the origin of the meaning of the custom is just like when you go for a walk, you put one foot in front of the other, and that's how you get where you're going. So to in life, the way that you can emerge or the resiliency to be able to, to come to overcome is to put one foot in front of the other. So the imagery of a walk is how you come out of grief. And I think that that's part of what's carried us, us carried me, my family through is more of those. And it's, it's not like, you know, we're these walkers, like we're walking quick speeds or we're counting the steps or we're going far distances. It's just the experience of, of a leisurely stroll and a walk and taking deep breaths and, and being outdoor air and the freshness and getting outside your Daladamos, your four cubits, and realizing there is a world beyond and this will continue and we will turn a corner and life will go on. It's really cathartic. That's awesome. That's awesome. You were gonna. You were about to hit professionally. Yeah, professionally, we've all had to adjust, and we've had to adjust enormously because one of the biggest challenges, and I'll make a confession here, is one of the biggest regrets I have during this period that I'm not. I'm not. I'm not good at, and I'm not satisfied with what, I, what I'm doing. Is is the checking in on people. Um, it's a challenge that we have such a large community. It's a great bracha, a blessing in so many ways, but it's such a challenge because to start calling, checking in, following through, and of course I am trying to identify populations or people that most need that contact and connect with them. I wish I could call one by one, but if you do the math of the number of families we have and the time that takes, and, and they're not one-minute conversations when you call and see how someone's been doing. So the normal connections you had where you'd see people before or after your class or on Shabbos or going, you know, you'd interact at, at the Simcha or at that dinner for the, or Jewish organization and, and you get so much done, so to say, right? You go to the APAC event, you go yeah. to the JNF, you go to the other yeah. shul dinner and you, what we call in our industry, work the room, which is you walk around and it's not, it's not disingenuous, it's real. You know, you're seeing people, hey, what's going on? And what's happening with, with your son, with your daughter, with your mother, what, whatever became of this? And you get those real connections. Now, it's really limited to classes. And over Zoom, we're, you know, and over whatever technology platform, we're really able to connect in amazing ways. But it's all delivery, lecture, learning, formal, and the banter, and the laughter, and the interpersonal, and the moment, sometimes, you know, the handshake, the hug. I don't know about you. I was looking through an album in my house the other day. Uh, we had taken a vacation and we encountered another family we knew on that vacation. And there's a picture of my wife and the other wife with their arms around each other. And I saw the picture and I recoiled and I thought, oh my God, they're not supposed to touch each other. What are they doing? And then I realized, no, that, that was okay then. Like we're forgetting what's normal and not normal when I saw that. But the power of touch, the power of touch is really a powerful medium. Now we've learned it's also a dangerous medium in the Me Too movement world where we all have to learn about personal space and when it's okay and consensual and all that other stuff. But when it's invited and when it's welcome to hold someone's hand, to give that hug, to put an arm on their shoulder, it's gone. We don't have that ability. So even when you're counseling over FaceTime or Zoom or WhatsApp video or whatever platform you're using, and it's the gift of video connection, I see you right now as we're recording this, even though the listener only hears it, and that's, that's powerful. If we, if we weren't looking at each other, it'd be a different thing. That's gone. That's gone in our interactions with people. It's, that's, that's real. it's hard. It's hard. It really is. I, I, and, you know, I will share your frustration because we put so much time into our classes and our lectures 
and you're exhausted when it's all over and then you still haven't connected with this whole group of people from your community i feel the same way you know i um i wonder if there's a way <laughs> rabbinically spiritually of elevating the concept of just connecting on a mundane level so we we as rabbis feel like we're doing something spiritually meaningful just by calling someone up even if it means we're teaching right. less torah i mean that's the problem how there's only so much time in the day and you can't really delegate i know you have an amazing rabbinic staff and so do i but how, you can't delegate right. relationships i learned that from one of my mentors you mentioned before rabbi lookstein he had you know i was part of his rabbinic staff but like a relationship's a relationship. It's not something you can delegate to somebody else. It's, it's exactly. Hard, so, and it's true for people grieving. I mean, these these Zoom shiva calls are like, it's not <laughs> it's not normal, you know. And and the funerals no. that are a handful of people, and and even the simchas, you know, to do them and orchestrate them in a way that it's um it's not normal. It's not normal. And I hope that we don't become adjusted to it being normal. And then and then there's the whole problem of we've resumed minyanim. Although in Florida we have a spike right now and. Every hour, we're learning more and trying to uh, figure out what's the right thing to mm-hmm. do. We resumed outdoor minyanim, and then we moved to services indoors, you know, being very far apart from one another. And um, are you staying? Are you staying indoors? In we're staying indoors for now. In fact, we think it's actually the safest place to be because we're we're ten feet apart, and it's really there's no shared surface. The bathrooms are closed. You walk in through an open door. You make it to your seat. Everyone has to wear a mask and you leave and we have the minimum time. We've abbreviated the services and we're doing it really in the safest way. And we've had no, um, we've had actually no transmission of virus in that setting. So that, yeah, that's been Thank working God. out pretty well that way for us um, so far. Um, but these outdoor minyanim, what do they mean for the future of centralized Jewish communal life? There are people who are loving it. They're like shorter than ever. There's no speech. I can wear shorts and a T-shirt. Um, we omit the parts I don't like. You know, there are people loving it, and I'm not judging them or, or knocking them. It's a really complicated time. You just kind of wonder what's going to be left when this is over. How strong will our institutions be? Will people come back together? And how do we define community? If you take away campus, how do you define community? If you take away congregating, right. how do you define community? What's left of it? Well, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I, it's that's rough because I, I we we rented a place out here in Muncie, the holy city of Muncie, and uh, I've been going. You know, MGE has um, on Shabbat we come in to conduct, and we're doing this with the whole staff now every Saturday morning in Central Park. Just a small group of people, maybe a dozen, fifteen people, six feet apart. We're sitting in Central Park, going through the parsha, doing some tefillot that don't require a minion, and. Um, you know, we used to be 100 at least strong every Shabbos. We're down to 15, but right. it's a different format. And we're trying to, your good friend Rabbi Ezra and I are trying to figure out, we're looking actually literally over the next two weeks, reopening on Shabbos an actual minion. Where are we doing that? Outside, inside. It's not simple. It really, really is not simple. Exactly. Um, exactly. You know, something that obviously complicated this whole period of time um, and, and that's an understatement, was the, the, the death of George Floyd and the, the, pro, the protests and the riots. And mm. This is another issue that I'm struggling with. I'm curious how you, who I know is deeply concerned for equality for all people um, and the need to stand up to whatever racism exists in the United States, and we can argue how bad it is or how little, but we know it's there. How do we balance that with the movement that also we both know seems to have some anti-Semitic elements to it. That's a real struggle for me, um, and I'm curious what my colleagues and my friends think. Yeah, it's a huge struggle. I, I think that in this conversation, like in almost other in public life today, the word of what's missing is what's called nuance. There's no nuance. People have lined up, they dig their heels in, and if you want to identify with a certain demographic or population or ideology, then you just got your talking points and your party line and you're all in. And there's nuance. These are really, really complicated issues. So is there systemic racism in the police force in general? I don't know enough to know. I do know that there is racism. I know there's racism, if we're honest, in our community, the Jewish community. And it's up to us. We, you know, we have, to, we have to purge it. We have to get rid of it. We have to talk out against it. Because what happens to minorities, what happens to, to black people, happens to the Jewish people, we really are intertwined together. It's the right thing to do 
regardless, but nevertheless, it's also a smart thing to do because as minorities, our, our futures are intertwined. So um, it's, it's clear as day that we need to speak out against it and we need to address it and we need to not tolerate certain derogatory names that are used or jokes that we heard, we hear, or policies that are, that are unfair. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't mean that wholesale you lack nuance in the national conversation about it. What are the responsibilities within the black community and black leadership and what things need to change? Uh, what are some of the... the I, I last week wrote a tweet that got some attention, not that I am a, a major... Uh, tweeter. Um, tweeter, a major... Uh, what do they call those? Influencer at all. Oh, I'm not I even a minor influencer. Nah, I'm not even a minor influencer. But uh, it got some attention because I called out the ADL and its leader who did a uh, event together with Al Sharpton. Al Sharpton is an unrepentant anti-Semite yeah. who has never taken responsibility or sufficiently apologized, made amends for his role in the Crown, Heights, uh, Crown Heights riots or or many things that he has said. So because it's convenient right now to align with him, he somehow is a spokesperson for equality. He is a he's really a a. a a human being who should not be celebrated or given a platform whatsoever. And I think the ADL violated its mission, which is to confront anti-Semitism by giving him a platform and allowing him to spread it. So it's complicated. And I think what's missing in this conversation and in almost every other one right now is nuance. The people who are willing to admit that there's nuance, that there's nuance, it's not all or nothing. And then you don't have to dig in your heels and sign up to become a card-carrying member of any perspective. You're allowed to be nuanced in your thinking. You're allowed to hold several truths simultaneously, right? at the risk of your never having me on again. I'll give you another example. Right? Take Donald Trump, who's probably the most polarizing personality of, of the modern era. And you know, there's like the haters and the lovers. He could do no right, he could do no wrong. And, and then there's a community of people who say, I have a lot of challenges with his character, with the way he speaks, with his failed leadership. I have a lot, a lot, a lot of problems with him. I'm also willing to acknowledge ABC that I think are good policies or things he's done for Israel or for the Jewish people and college campuses and making anti-Semitism a hate crime. I can hold multiple truths simultaneously. I'm able to have nuance in a conversation. And it feels like that's something which is more and more lost and lacking. And it's really lonely the community or the people who still feel nuanced, who can have those conversations with sophistication, who can listen respectfully, who could hear other perspectives, whose mind can be changed or can want to change others' minds with the power of persuasion, not by labeling or by criticizing. So I think on the issue of race, um, it's a perfect example of that importance of nuance. Yeah, I mean, it, it's. I remember saying this years ago, watching, I think, Fox during the Obama administration. I said, how is it possible that a man in the course of eight years could never say or do anything right. And now you have the same thing with um, CNN um, in terms of our current president. You know, it's really, it's virtually impossible that one person, even if you think he's the biggest buffoon in the world, never to do anything or say anything that's correct. And, it, it, and I think it's a great point you're making about nuance. It really demonstrates the lack of... I don't want to say, I don't, I don't want to presume insincerity or people aren't being genuine, but really, if something, someone does something right, call it out, recognize it, and you can still recognize all the bad or wrong things, you know, and, and I think, you know, I, I just think it's a tremendous challenge the Jewish community is, is having right now. I'm having it um, mm. because a lot of my students, participants, they really want a very vocal leader when it comes to uh, Black Lives Matter, and I'm, I'm struggling, honestly, because... Uh, I can't do anything to lend credence or support to BDS or to anything that's anti-Israel or to Al Sharpton, as you mentioned. And unfortunately, they're all wrapped up in one. I have one student, I'll call her out, Michelle Safin. She's uh, just made Aliyah. I'm very, very proud of her. She's extremely nuanced and has given me an MGE aspects of the racism equality platform that we can support that she believes will not in any way be mixed up with any of the anti-Semitic or anti-Israel um, platform, but it's not easy. It's really, really not easy. Right, and, and the challenge to us as leaders is that everyone's judging us and evaluating us, and, and we have to meet their standard, right? So let's say you were to both write a post on social media, send out an email to the MJE community, lecture publicly, be interviewed on TV, and in all those settings talk about racism is wrong and it's bad, we have to confront it, we have to get rid of it, here are some of the ideas of how we could do it. But it didn't meet the standards others hold you to, right? But you didn't show up at a rally in the middle of a pandemic. Right? There's an example of nuance. I have major issue with anyone who attended or spoke at a rally during a pandemic. 
Uh, one of my local elected leaders, who is a dear friend of mine and study partner, dear friend, I had a really strong exchange of words because he's been very vocal about Florida's response right now to the pandemic and what we're doing and the governor. And I said to him, the day that you decided to attend the rally and speak at one, you forfeited your right to weigh in on how we react because you were part of the problem. We were in the middle of a pandemic. We're in the middle of literally something unprecedented in our time. Lives are at stake. And as important as racism is, there must have been other ways that we could address it other than risking the public health. So the day that you went, I feel that you forfeited your right to weigh in on this. And there again is an example of, of nuance where... You know, you're evaluated. If you didn't attend a rally or speak at one, you don't really care about this. Maybe you really care about it. I also really care about public health and pandemic and contagion and virus. So there just there has to be nuance and we have to be fair in evaluating other people and letting people have different perspectives and letting people express even a shared concern in a different way. Um, and I think that's part of the danger is people are judging one another. And for you, particularly in the demographic that you lead and in Manhattan, in the city, I imagine there is enormous pressure to deal with it exactly the way others want you to. And even if you are nine out of 10 of the way there, but if you're missing that 10th, then you obviously don't care about this as much as they do. Yeah, I'm thinking about my Soviet Jewry days, literally in high school and college. We had the same issue. We had these big, big rallies. And I was convinced at the time, I was very into Soviet Jewry, the only way to confront the former Soviet Union, the Iron Curtain, is publicly. There were rabbis and other great communal leaders that felt that the rallies were counterproductive. They were into what was called quiet diplomacy. And they cared, they were just as passionate about freeing our Soviet brethren from the, iron, from the other side of the Island Curtain, but they had a different approach. You know, and, and I think that's true, like, really rough. Uh, nuance would be amazing. Keep writing about nuance, Rabbi Goldberg. Yeah, Seriously, well, keep writing, right. because the more you bring it to people's minds, the more, and, and it's such a Jewish idea. We're, we're, it's getting late, I don't want to keep you here too long. I know how busy you are. That's okay. Um, if there is a piece of Torah, my wife will kill me if, um, <laughs> in a nice way, respectfully, um, if I don't ask you to share some piece of Torah. And in particular, she really admires, and as I do as well, that you are one of those rabbis that speak directly to faith, to amuna, to belief. Um, you know, the modern Orthodox world, we, we pride ourselves on being intellectual, nuanced, <laughs> right. academic, and sometimes, you know, and I'm speaking on behalf of my wife here. My wife's a Balas Chuva, and she feels strongly about modern orthodoxy. She considers herself a proud modern orthodox Balas Chuva, a student of Rabbi Buchwald. All of our kids were poster children for YU. You and I were literally poster rabbis <laughs> for YU recently. Yes. And, but she doesn't feel that rabbis speak directly enough about God and about belief in God and passion for God, which, by the way, you can't. You can't be involved in outreach if you don't. Mm. But for somehow in our community, we, we shy away from those topics and we get a little, you know, intellectual and nuanced. So I, I, I just, even, even if you don't have any Torah right now to share, but I just, I just want to congratulate you for speaking to those issues and encourage you to do it more and more because it, it's extraordinarily um, important and missing from the, the spiritual dialogue in our community. I couldn't agree with you more. And it's missing from our educational system. You can go through 12 years and longer, and you don't ever hear about, talk about, feel connected with, feel loved by. And, and you know, Rav Moshe Weinberger, who's the father of the neo-Hasidus, whatever label, title you want to give it, you don't have to start wearing a gartel or grow your payas long or, or start doing some things that seem wacky or out there in order to start talking about God. God is always supposed to be part of the conversation. He's supposed to be part of the... It's a relationship. And, and the relationship with God needs the same ingredients of any healthy relationship. It needs communication. It means listening. It means talking. It means confiding. It means dedicating time. It, means, it, means, it needs the ingredients that nourish any good relationship. And we don't talk about it. Like you said, our community, which we have a lot to be proud of, somehow feels more advanced um, if we use fancy terms, you know, ontological, axiological, scholarly, academic, like the more the term, you know, no one else knows it. We invoke the few Latins that we know, Latin terms and words we know, and then we feel really, <laughs> really smart. But we, but we raise a generation of kids who can use Latin to talk about God, but have they ever had a conversation with God? Have they ever felt his love, his presence, his connection? 
Um, so I, I have a lot of, you know, my favorite Dvar Torah is whatever next Dvar Torah I'm giving because whatever I speak about is always what's on my mind. It's resonating with me. Mm-hmm. And of course, I have mm-hmm. favorites and the well that I've gone to countless times and I can share a few with you right now. But, you know, I saw last week and I've been sharing a lot of different contexts in Mizmor Chav Gimel, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. Hashem ro'i lo achsar. Hashem is my shepherd, lo achsar, I won't be missing anything. The simple translation is lo achsar. If I see God is in my life, I have what I need and what I deserve. What I don't have is not meant for me. If he's Hashem ro'i, if he's my shepherd, lo achsar, I'll never be lacking. But I saw an interpretation that says, no, Hashem ro'i, he's my shepherd. The prayer, what King David was saying is lo achsar. May I never be lacking in realizing Hashem ro'i. May I live my life and never feel deficient or lacking or struggling oh, with knowing beautiful. that he's my shepherd. He's my shepherd through through a pandemic, through hard times, through whatever we're going through. He's shepherding me through it. He's my shepherd. He's with me. And I think that we need to we need to have that conversation. My older children, when they were young, I was that, you know, scholarly academic trying to be smart and, and to talk about like talk to Hashem, thank Hashem, ask Hashem. Ah, fools did that. People with very simple, you know, simple people did that. And with my younger kids, they will tell you. Um, I totally radically changed. We talk about Hashem in our house all the time now. Not We don't say, don't forget to make a bracha. We say, don't forget to thank Hashem. When we, something happens coincidental, that's extraordinary, remarkable, that's great, even ordinary, don't forget to see that as Hashem's hand. I've also said in many contexts recently, we started, um, it's a year or two ago already, I had read that two great rabbis, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein and Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, encouraged, if you want to believe God's existence, start a journal where you see God in your life every day. So we have a modern day journal. It's called WhatsApp. We made a WhatsApp group. We have our Fam Jam, which is our Goldberg immediate family WhatsApp group. And then we've got Hashkacha Pratis. It's a WhatsApp group of my wife and my children. And almost daily, we are all trying that. to That's post. Beautiful. So I'll give you an example. The other day, my seven-year-old son puts a voice note in the Hashkacha Pratis WhatsApp group. And this is his version of Hashkacha Pratis. He says, listen, everybody, mommy picked me up and I was in the back of car and she put her hand back to hold my hand. And just then I finished my ice pop and so I was able to put my wrapper in her hand. Hashkacha Pratis. Right? It's like, it's a ridiculous Hashkacha Pratis story. She never, you know, she didn't put her hand there to get his wrapper. Yeah, but for a seven-year-old seven year old kid, Hashem Pratis. made her, his mother put her hand back to hold his hand right when he could put his garbage in her hand. Right? So what that does is it means that the seven-year-old is now living life looking to see God in his life. Looking to see God in his life. It's an amazing thing. And by the way, by the way, you know, this is a major, I hope you don't mind me jumping in. This is a major question philosophically. You know, did God at that moment decide, so to speak, to have your wife, you know, put her hand out at that moment? That's a very important, you know, ontological question, all right? But to develop the idea that things are happening in the world, maybe that's not a good example, maybe for a seven-year-old, right? But for us adults to believe that God is interacting, you know, even if we can't always see it, I think that's a great exercise. I agree with you. I agree with you 100%. How do you reconcile free will with divine providence? With And I've given classes on this, and it's complicated, and we should concede that we don't have all the answers. But I think that we make the mistake when we don't get all the answers of saying, therefore, I'm not going to touch it. I'm not going to tackle it. I'm not going to talk about it. When I think we should do the opposite and to admit, I don't have it all worked out. But I know he exists. I know he's in my life. I know he loves me. And I want to work harder on seeing that. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's absolutely beautiful. I also want to just tell our listeners that um, uh, Rabbi uh, Goldberg has uh, amazing WhatsApp uh, entries on Imuna, on faith, on belief, and struggling through beliefs. And if anyone's interested, please let us know. We're going to do some maybe posting of some of your Torah because I think it's absolutely beautiful. Uh, also, you. your sitter snippets are extremely well-received. Uh, we do a lot of teaching about prayer at MGE, and I've used a lot of your Torah. I've called you for it. I've just quoted, always, you know, uh, you know, quoting, maybe Gu'ula Olam, bringing redemption to the world, but I, I can't tell you how appreciate, appreciated your Torah is in our world. Uh, I know you're, you so you're directing it for your congregation, your community, um, but it's extraordinarily important I would say 10, maybe 20% of people who regularly come to MG have a modern Orthodox background. And one of the things that I think draws them to our programs and our classes, and the programs were not really for them. It was really designed for people without the day school background. But people are, people are yearning and thirsty for this kind of Torah. And Rabbi Moshe Weinberger and this, um, whatever you want to call it, 
it's extremely needed and appreciated today. So your your Torah, you should Hashem should continue to bless you to be marbits your Torah. Uh, I thank you. If there's anything else you wanted to say before uh, we bring this to a close, this was just awesome. A lot of fun for no, me. Thank you for having personally, me. Personally, and uh, Hashem should bless you and your families. I hope I was taking notes. Uh, everyone should start taking walks, uh, keeping a journal, um, and uh, spend a little more time with the family. Uh, quality time. That's what I heard as well. And um, I appreciate all of your insights and, and your honesty uh, in speaking about your own personal life and your own struggles. Um, those are probably the most inspirational uh, and thank informative so for our students. And um, Absolutely. Well, thank you for doing it. And I, and I really do thank you. And I'm not just, it's not just that, you know, reciprocal love and, and uh, admiration, but, you know, for a long time we've been, we've been watching what you're doing. And we live in, a, in an area, South Florida, Palm Beach County. We have a quarter of a million Jews here. Boca Raton is 130,000 Jews. 50% of the people who live here are Jewish. And yet, it is only an 8% affiliation rate. Wow. 92%, 90% of the Jews in our area have no connection to their Judaism. So we need, we need MJE South, and, and the work is there to do, and we're always looking at what you're doing and how sincere you are and the excellence with which you structure and do everything. And my buddy Rev Ezra, a special soul and a soul brother, and what you're doing and changing lives is an inspiration not just uh, within your territory, but you're, you're touching all of us also. So we look forward to MJE South at some point when you're ready to expand. Amen, amen. Well, thank you for keeping us pumped and, um, and for sharing all the Torah you do. You should keep it up, man. Amen. It's great to see you. Awesome. Thanks so much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Wildscast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wilds. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.